Remember verse 7 is the third illustration of the judgment of God. And we have seen the judgment of God illustrated through the failures of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now they got to the promised land and said, no, no, we can't go in there. And so they, uh, everybody over 20 years of age died in the wilderness. The second illustration was last week, and it was the illustration of the angels who pursued things that they weren't designed for, left their own domain, and the Lord brought judgment upon them. Now we've got, so the Israelites, the angels, and now we come to Gentiles. So overarching, this shows us that the judgment of the Lord is, is he's no respecter of persons. Either you're, you're with him or you're not. There is no in-between line there. So judgment is spread upon all those who are apostate, all those who seek after things that are not godly, who seek after their own way, or what is worse... We don't even care about God. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to you today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes and hearts to your word, that we might have a clear understanding of the life that you are calling us to and be reminded, Lord, of what happens to those outside of the things of Christ, those who turn their back or simply ignore the things of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now, I'm going to just read verse 7, and then we're going to go to some other places here today to understand exactly what he is talking about. So just remain seated because we're going to be jumping around here. Uh, Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, we're going to look at this verse through the life of one man, and he was the only man to survive the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that would be Lot. Now, his wife and two daughters also survived, but we're going to focus upon Lot. So if you would, go from there to Genesis 13. Now, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah really was... uh, um, kind of straightforwardly understood until about, oh, I don't know, 200 years ago or so, and then really 50 years or so ago, when they started to say it wasn't the destruction for the, 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 the sexual sin or the pagan idolatry that was going on there or their desire uh, to, to, to have Lot send out these angels, but it was an issue of hospitality. Uh, because they didn't show hospitality, God destroyed the two cities as an example of judgment. Well, that, um, that really doesn't work. Um, scholarly speaking, academically speaking, it's a bad understanding. It's a bad uh, application as well. And it doesn't jive with passages like Jude that says it was destroyed because of gross immorality. Now, there have been other explanations. Um, and, and I looked some up this week uh, that people have tried to use to explain why God or, or to explain the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, these uh, angelic ninjas came down and destroyed the city. Uh, the men were cursed and turned into zombies. That's why they couldn't find the doors. I'll make this stuff up. Okay, somebody else makes this stuff up. And, of course, you know, the only way to kill a zombie is to, what, cut off its head or burn it up or something like that. It's funny how we talk about zombies like they're real now. I mean, they become so ingrained in our society. We don't have any TV shows and movies about zombies. 
sorry, um, uh, volcanic eruptions or earthquakes. Uh, the angels, and this is, this is one of my, my favorite explanations, the angels were genocidal terrorists who hated the perfect society that had grown up in and around Sodom and Gomorrah. So they came and had to destroy that perfect society. That was a theologian who came up with that one. Theologian, I put that in quotes. Okay, asteroids, meteors, uh, comets, comet debris from comets, all of these things have been uh, thrown out as examples of what may have happened or how these cities were destroyed. Secular archaeologists who have looked in and around that area have come to the conclusion, this is not believing in any sense, just secular archaeologists have come to the conclusion that there was a heat event, that's how they describe it, a heat event in that area many, many generations ago. Now, if, all you have to do is read Scripture and understand that that heat event was the Lord's judgment upon these people for their gross immorality and their pursuing of strange flesh. Now, we understand that Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because they were intolerant or, or un, un, uh, uh, inhospitable, okay? And, and we'll look at that a little bit more in a few moments. They were destroyed because of their gross immorality. They were destroyed because they would not turn to the things of the Lord. Remember, you couldn't find 50 righteous men. You couldn't find 40. You couldn't find 30. And, and, and Lot, as we see, had to be dragged out of the city. He had become so attached to the things of Sodom and Gomorrah. The reference in Scripture is clearly, um, clearly to their homosexual activity as well as other activities that are explicitly um, condemned in Scripture. So that was the issue of their destruction. And this is not really a political issue. It's not a scientific issue. It is a theological issue of what God says is sin and what God says is not sin. That's what it comes down to. They pursued unrighteous behavior and they were destroyed of that. Because of that, the men of Sodom involved themselves in gross immorality. They went after strange flesh, the flesh of the angels. That's what that refers to. And the destruction of the ent- entire inhabitants of in- two entire cities stands as a, an illustration of judgment, of God's judgment that is to come upon those who do not turn from their sin, who do not repent of that. And understand that, you know, in... in Just like Nineveh, if the cities would have repented and turned, they would have been saved and there would have been joy instead of destruction. But they did not. They pursued the things of their own desires. So let's look at Lot and his life and how this comes about. Now Lot was Abraham's nephew. Lot had not received a call from the Lord in the same way that Abraham had. Remember, the Lord comes to Abraham and says, Abe, I want you to go here. I want you to go to a land that is not yours. It's a promised land. It is there for you. Leave your family and everybody and hit the road and go. So Abraham went, and, and we think that Lot, his nephew, was just kind of caught up in this because he did not receive a call from the Lord. So he must have been talking with Abraham and, and was very excited about what was going on. And he said, hey, uncle, can I go with you? And Abe said, well, sure, come on, let's go. So they went together off into this land. And he was with Abraham for many years, and during those years, he prospered in a material fashion, and we're going to assume that he also prospered in a spiritual fashion, because we see everywhere else in Scripture, Lot is spoken of as a righteous man. Now, um, we're going to see that he had a, a pretty deep slide 
from righteous man into uh, unrighteousness or accommodation of unrighteousness, however we want to say that. And it begins with a, uh, a place in the life where Abraham and Lot are both being prospered by the Lord. Their flocks are growing, their herds are growing, uh, they've got more servants, and, and things are going well, and they reach a point where there's just not enough room. You know, this town isn't big enough for the both of us, that kind of thing. So they decide they're going to split. Now that takes us to Genesis 13, verse 8. Or we'll go to uh, verse 6. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Then Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Now, Abraham is the superior here. He is the older one, the one whom the Lord has called, but he, in a sense, defers to Lot and says, you make the first choice. I'll give you the option. You can go wherever you want. Look around and see where you want to establish yourself. And, and here we begin the downward slide of Lot, from his presence with Abraham, the, the chosen guy of God, to from, from Abraham is going to come his chosen people, so he is the patriarch of the Jewish nation, and here he is in close contact with him, and now begins to slide down as he moves away from him. Look at the next verse. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan. Literally, it says he looked towards Sodom. Okay, Sodom was in the valley of Jordan, but he says he looked towards Sodom and saw that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt, as you go to Zor. So he looks towards this area geographically, and it's the same word if you, if you, if you jump ahead uh, in, in Genesis 19, when they get out of the city and Lot's wife looks back. At Sodom, she looks back longingly. And so, saw, and so Lot is looking at this valley with a longing in his heart like, that's rich. Okay, that's where good life will happen. I think I want to go down there and live. Okay? So that's the first step in his slide. The second step is verse 12. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, they were nomadic at this time, uh, Abraham and Lot, and what happens is Lot doesn't just go to the valley, the Jordan Valley, he goes kind of close to Sodom. Maybe he saw Sodom as the place where it was happening, or maybe he was uh, a little bit tired of this nomadic existence. Whatever it was, he is moving closer and closer to Sodom. Now, at this time, if, if I'm going to project into Lot a little bit, I might say he may have mentioned the wickedness of the city and said, boy, I don't want to get too close there, but we want to be close enough to, you know, the city's got all those cool things going on, but I don't want to get involved in, in their sin, so we're still going to live outside of the city. Turn over a page or so to chapter 14, verse 12. Now, there was a little war that happened, and, and Lot was 
taken uh, and, and Abram came and, and, and rescued him in, in chapter 14, verse 12. And they also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So something has happened between verse chapter 13 and chapter 14 where Sodom has not just pit, where Lot has not just pitched his tent near Sodom, he's actually moved into the city of Sodom. So he's getting closer and closer. Now he's in the midst of the wickedness that is going on inside this city. Um, there's no explanation given for the change, but the change is not a good change. Like a moth that's attracted to the flame. Maybe he was living outside the city and heard, heard the noise of the partying or whatever was going on inside and said, hey, I want to move in there, and eventually moved inside. Now go to chapter 19. Now remember, he's with Abraham. He chooses particularly the valley that Sodom is in. He pitches his tent near Sodom. We find that he is living in Sodom. And now in chapter 19, verse 1, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Okay? That's where the elders of the city spent their time. There was, that's where there was a, uh, uh, we call the, the, in a sense, the seat of judgment was there. So, the elders would sit there on this bench in the gate and people would come and they would judge between right and wrong, property cases, law cases, things like that. This is the level of prominence that Lot has reached within the city of Sodom. Okay, that he actually sits in the gate, is a judge, is respected within the community. Now perhaps some would think, oh great, I mean, Lot has come in. This is the great chance for him to really make some changes in society there. And he's become a leader. And he can stand for what is right and what is just and really begin to, to mold um, uh, Sodom and, and move it away from its paganness into something that is good. Or maybe some of the more uh, liberal theologians might think that well, finally Lot has thrown off his fundamentalism and gotten used to some of the things of the real life, and, and he's become accustomed to these things, and just loosened up a little bit, uh, just faced reality that this is the way the world is, and he's just going to live within it. Well, what happened was Lot had abandoned whatever, apparently abandoned whatever calling that he had from the Lord, or whatever influence was, was prominent in his life at one time, it has now been put on the back burner. And he is the, the exact opposite of the man in Psalm 1. He, is now, he now walks in the counsel of the wicked. He now sits in the seat of the scoffers. His delight is not in the Lord, but in the things of the world. He shows no evidence that he meditates upon the word day and night. He shows no evidence that he even desires to be that tree planted by a stream, nourished by the water. He is planted firmly in Sodom, and he is being nourished by the sinfulness all around him. Now, this raises a question for us as, as just regular believers. Can, can the people of God, uh, not, not, the question is not can we live in cities. We can, we can live in cities. But the question is how close can we get to sin and still maintain our Christianity? Uh, is it ever inappropriate to have relations and, and interactions with unsaved people? Or can we take positions of leadership in the unsaved world? Well, we have to be in the world. The question is, will, will we be of the world? 
Okay? But Lot had gone to Sodom with the wrong motives, I think. I think he'd gone to Sodom because he thought he could prosper there. He didn't go with an evangelistic mindset. He went with a more of a material mindset. It looked good, and he longed for it, and he went there. Okay, perhaps at one time he saw himself as a, an agent of change for the culture of Sodom, but apparently he hasn't made much progress. Uh, in fact, you, you really can't, you can't look at that uh, and say that, that, well, Lot came in as somebody who was really going to make a big difference in the, in the city. It would almost be like saying, um, uh, if, if, if you were, uh, now Paul says what? I become all things to all men that I might win, win some. That doesn't mean that Paul became a murderer to minister to murderers. It doesn't mean he became a gambler to minister to gamblers. It would be like, well, I, you, know, I want to, uh, you know, I want to minister to the mafia, so I'm going to become a member of the mafia. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul says, basically, that he set aside his privileges and doesn't take those with him so that he might interact with those uh, from different backgrounds, that he might win some for Christ. He does not demand the privileges of what he has achieved and, and, and of his status in life. He says, I'm going to set those aside that I might minister to those who are different. So Lot is sitting here at the gate when he saw the angels. And he gets up and offers them lodging for the night. Let's read a little bit. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed down with his face to the ground. So he had some understanding of who they were, apparently. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, no, we shall spend the night in the square. This was not uncommon to spend the night in the square, of a city if you were a visitor. Sometimes inns were few and far between. Uh, most of the time it was safe. But Lot understands the dangers in this particular city. Verse 3. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate it. Now look at verse 4. Before they lay down. This is after dinner. The men of the city, the men of Sodom... Literally, that means all the men of all the city. All the men of all the city came to Lot's house. Now, how many men were that? Well, we don't know, but it was all of them from what Scripture says. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them in the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Now, Lot hadn't fallen so far that he didn't know that this was wicked, what the men of the city wanted to do. But how does he address these men? My brothers, okay, my friends. This is a very intimate type of of address here. This is not... Uh, that you would come to a, a crowd and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a place where he knew these people, he had friendships with these people, and he still understands them as his friends. He knew what they wanted to do was wrong, but as he attempts to intervene, what happens? Jump to verse 9. They said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. 
So what he does is says, no, don't, don't involve yourself in this sin. Okay, take, take, take a minute, think about what you're doing. And what did they do? They attacked him. So they wanted to treat him worse than the two angel, angelic visitors in his house because he wanted to stop their sin. So how much influence had Lot had in Sodom? Not much, okay, not much. He had thought he had made friends. He had thought he had been a, a change agent within society. To some degree, he was sitting in the seat of judgment. But they hated him because he attempted to stop their sin. Now, Lot has his own problems. Look at verse 8. Now behold, now they, they, all the men show up, they, they want these two angels. He says, now behold, I have two daughters who have not had any relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do with them whatever you like. Now, as a father of three daughters, I'm kind of appalled at this verse. I want you to know that. Um, but we have to understand there's some cultural issues here. And the cultural issues are, are sorry, ladies, you just weren't as important uh, at that time as boys were. Um, the other issue is, to some degree, an issue of hospitality. Um, Lot's visitors, these two angels, were his responsibility because they were in his home. So their lives were in his hand. So according to the custom, he was obligated to defend them with the life of his family, with even his own life, okay, so that they might survive. So he offers to the men of the city his two daughters. And what do the men of the city say? We don't want them, we want the visitors. So their focus upon sin is so narrow and so burned into their hearts that this is the path that they are pursuing. This is the path that they are pursuing. And Lot, in a sense, if I'm reading into this, I think that maybe Lot had become so accustomed to sin or so accustomed to compromise that maybe he was also willing to settle for a lesser sin by the giving of his two daughters and protecting the two angels. I, I, I don't know exactly about that, but we find that his daughters, after they leave Lot, involve themselves in a compromise as well. Uh, maybe they learned that from their father. And it also may be that it's easy when you're in a pinch to make excuses to compromise. Well, this is the way out, and I know that uh, I have to choose something bad, but it gets me out of the situation. Well, maybe Lot... You were really dealing with the consequences of the decisions you made long ago that brought you there, and you knew you shouldn't have been there, but you became friends and became companions with this population within this city. Now you're forced to make these hard decisions, and both were bad. Both were bad. So the men reject Lot's offer and probably would have killed him and his wife and his daughters as well, but the visitors pull him in off, in a sense, off the porch, close the door, and they strike the men of the city with, Hebrew says, a stupor. We have kind of translated that into a blindness. That the men, uh, they can't find the door. They can't find their way around. They're just wandering around. They can't see. There's no, um, no way that they're going to be able to get Lot or his household. Now, Romans 1 indicates that the types of sins demonstrated in Sodom are only really a pattern of a larger practice of sin in the pagan world. You have depravity, pride, sexuality, injustice, and their sin is all kind of focused upon their desire for these angels here. Now, when we look at Scripture, and there are, there are yeah, how many thousands of years between 
Genesis, and the New Testament. Sodom is as bad as it gets because of these actions. And God destroyed this city. It's as bad as it gets as an example of evil until we get to Matthew chapter 11 in the New Testament. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 11. And you think to yourself, maybe you think, that's the way I thought, well, what could be worse than Sodom? I mean, gee, man, God rained fire and brimstone down upon them, wiped them off the map and, and, and in judgment. So what could be worse than these cities? Well, Matthew chapter 11. Now remember, all this comes out of Jude 7 as he references them and talks about the judgment of the Lord. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he began, this is Christ, then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Now, Jesus did a lot of miracles, and these three cities in particular, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, are situated on the northern area of the Sea of Galilee, and this is where Jesus did most of his miracles, most of his miracles. 21, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, what kind of miracles did Jesus do? Cast out demons? Healed? I, I, I don't know if this is the way it was, but we will make an assumption. Just think of the amount of disease that was wiped out because of Jesus' work in this northern little section around the Sea of Galilee. He went into the fields and preached and would heal. And people, everybody who had something wrong with them would come to him. Or their friends would bring them in. Remember, you got the guy who's paralyzed and his friends dig a hole in the roof and lower him down? That happened in this area. You've got the demoniac. You've got the guy who can't be chained. Uh, you've got all of these healings. Uh, all of these things go on and they're centered around these three cities. Now, the mention of Tyre and Sidon, to the good Jewish mind, you have to understand, Tyre and Sidon were pagan Gentile nations or, or cities. And they were as bad, for the Jews, they were as bad as you got. And Jesus is saying, if the things that were done in you, Chorazon and Bethsaida, were done in those cities, they would have repented. They would have believed, but you did not. See, Jesus says, I give you all this light, and you remain in darkness. I give you all of this opportunity. To, to see the great works of the Lord, and you simply ignore them. Let's read the next one, 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, what happened to Sodom? It's gone. What's going to happen to Capernaum? Well, well why is it so bad? Was Capernaum obsessed with, with sexual sin? 
Were they obsessed with seeking after angels and strange flesh and gross immorality? There's no evidence of that. What were they obsessed with? They ignored Jesus. They simply were apathetic to Jesus. They saw his miracles and went, ah, cool, and went back and did other things. They saw him raise people who had legs that were crippled from their birth. And they were not moved to believe. They saw people who were blind gain their sight. They didn't care. They saw people who were possessed with demons that nobody could control. Now had that demon removed. And they didn't care. They were indifferent to the things of Christ. That was their sin. You say, well, is that really that bad? Well, it certainly says. Jesus says it'll be worse for the city that was indifferent to the things of Christ, then it will be to the one that blatantly pursued sin. Hmm. Just apathetic to Christ. That's bad? Indifferent to Christ? That's bad. You better believe it's bad. Worse than Sodom? Apparently it is. Now, in the Old Testament, they understood how bad it was to be apathetic to Christ or to be apathetic to the things of God. 2 Kings talks about what happens if we simply ignore the Word of God. He will bring judgment upon us. It's as if we understand the greater privilege we have, the greater responsibility we have. The more we know about Christ, the more we're held accountable for the things of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Jesus says Tyre and Sidon would have repented and it'll be worse for for Capernaum than it is for Sodom. See, these cities experienced all the work of Jesus and they just didn't believe. Capernaum exceeded Chorazin and Bethesda, Bethsaida in privilege. Sodom exceeded Tyre and Sidon in sin. But the judgment on Capernaum will be worse than it will be on Sodom. Why? Because they ignored Jesus. Gosh. When men have that kind of privilege and do not repent, what happens is, in a sense, their guilt becomes aggravated, their guilt becomes enlarged because they have been exposed to the things of Christ. The works that Jesus did should have stopped those people in their tracks and drove them to their knees. But they didn't care. They say, I've got other things to do. I don't have time to. I mean, yeah, he raised that guy from the dead. Cool. Uh, What about dinner? So what are the implications for us today? Well, the implications, I think, are frightening. Because we, in our society, have more access to the things of Christ, really, than anybody else in history. If we look back and see... Uh, I mean, how many Bibles do you have in your house? How many Christian bookstores are there in the city? Uh, How many Christian radio stations do we have? Uh, How many, you know, it takes, what, three clicks and you can access how many places on the Internet with good, solid material, okay? You, You can go and listen to my sermons all week if you want, okay? Now, I remember growing up in, in Pittsburgh in the days where we had uh, Brother Earl and Sister Pearl and the Holy Tabernacle, which we thought was some place they were broadcasting from. That was, this was the only Christian radio stuff. But in reality, Earl and Pearl were in their basement uh, broadcasting and raising money. Okay? And that was all the Christian radio we had. 
But in today, it is everywhere. You get, a, depending upon your cable, how many Christian stations can you get on your cable? Now, some, is good, some are good and some are bad, okay? But we, in our society, have access to the things of God in an unprecedented scale. And what happens if we ignore it? What happens if we go, well, that's cool, but I don't like that radio station. Or what, I don't want to read that stuff. Or, yeah, 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 I mean, they're doing great things. And, yeah, he was very compassionate to me, but I have got other things to do. If we ignore the things of Christ, it'll be worse for us than for Sodom. So Lot's got to get out of town. That's what it comes to. And the two angels look at Lot and say, is there anybody else in town that wants to go? And Lot says, I've got two future son-in-laws. Let's go check out with them. So he goes over to the future son-in-laws, and the son-in-laws laugh at Lot. Okay, you've got to be kidding me. Destruction of this city? No, I don't believe that. So the angels pull him away, and they go back, and dawn arrives, and there's Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And the angels, two angels, have four hands. They grab a person, and that's the only four people that get out of Sodom. And the angels, the Hebrew says they had to pull Sot and his family out because their hearts still longed to remain there. They longed for those friendships. They longed for all that went on in Sodom. They, they kind of knew, but they didn't want to let go of it. Man, how often is that with us in sin? Yeah, I know sin's wrong, but I, I kind of like it. <laughs> I have to say, I kind of like it. The angels had to grab hold of them and pull them out of the city. See, have we let living in the world turn into being of the world? If the angels came to you today and pounded on the door of your house, and it was clear they were angelic visitors and said, come on, we have to leave Huntsville because the Lord's going to destroy it, what would you do? Would you say, well, come on, let's pack the car and we'll go. Say, no, there's no time to pack the car. You have to leave all that you have. This is, this is life or it's judgment. Which will it be? I mean, where's the longing of our hearts? Lot had been accepted and res- Lot had not been accepted or respected because of his righteous stance. But the sin had kind of overcome Lot, and he had been drawn to it and, and drawn into it. So it's a fine and I think sometimes fuzzy line that we walk as believers in society. Have I compromised with the pagan world? around me enough that I can get along or benefit from it or even become associated with it? Do I, like Lot, continue to move closer and closer to Sodom so that I can benefit from the things of the pagan world and, and the non-believing world? And, and, and am I becoming consumed by it? And how do I even assess this in my life? How do I even look and say, well, I've got to work and I've got to function in this world, and how do I assess whether I become too much like the world or am I standing for the things of Christ? I, I thought about this and I, I tried to sum it up. You have to ask ourselves three questions. Do you love Christ more than these? What are these? These are everything else. Everything else. Do you love Christ more than everything else? Do you flee sin? And do you fear the judgment to come? How will you then live? So let's pray. Lord, in our society, we we don't like to look at judgment. 
frankly, we, it's a terrible thing. And it's something that is far off. And we have to function today in this world. So sometimes, Lord, we, we all compromise. Sometimes compromise.